There are a lot of folks, and even Christian folks, who are snooping where they ought not, being nosy where they ought not, meddling where they ought not, and forming an opinion, yea, even an attitude, because we have our nose where it doesn't belong. You know, you find all kinds of things that uh, really the Bible does not even address. Let's face it. Everybody has their own opinions. Everybody has their own agenda and what they call their own convictions. But oftentimes it evolves into what can be Christianity's favorite pastime. And that is sticking our nose where it doesn't belong. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the gospel of John, if you would, in the last chapter, chapter 21, John chapter 21. We are continuing the series we've been in on lessons from the Lord. These are things that we can learn from the Lord himself as we follow him around and, and uh, we look into these episodes, these snapshots, if you would, classic scenes, really, of, of the life of Christ and, and pertaining especially to questions, questions he asked people for the most part. And we're going to see another question here today in this passage. By way of background, Christ has already gone to the cross. He has been buried. He rose again. He hasn't ascended yet, but it's within that time period between his resurrection and his ascension. And he makes here kind of a cameo appearance. Really, the apostles don't don't know it's him, but the apostles have gone back to uh, fishing, something they had given up to go serve the Lord. And now they're back and they're fishing and they fish all night and they strike out. Well, the next morning Christ shows up and I'm going to tell more of it in just a moment, but he he confronts especially Peter about an issue that needed to be resolved. And so talking to Peter in verse number 18, he says to him, verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walked whither thou wouldest But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee, whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord... And what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, He shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Notice those words, what is that to thee? Peter stuck his nose in where it didn't belong, and he got rebuked by the Lord. And we're going to be talking about that as we talk about overstepping our boundaries, overstepping our boundaries. Let's pray, shall we? Now, our Heavenly Father, we ask you, dear Lord, to bless this time. How I'm praying now that you'd help us to listen. How I'm praying for you to help us to get this truth down. And, Father, I'm just praying that as a result, uh, we we would mind our own business, really. And as Peter was told, we would hear those words even in this day and age, what is that to thee? 
Father, I pray for your help now, not only to get the truth today, but also to put it to practice. We pray now and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, Frederick the Great was the uh, head of Russia. He had this woman who came to him. She was hot and bothered about her husband. And she came into the throne room and and said, uh, Your Majesty, you need to talk to my husband. He treats me badly. And he said, Madam, that's none of my business. Well, hoping to gain some points and get her husband in trouble further, she said, Ah, but he speaks ill of you, my majesty. And he looked at her and said, That is none of your business. (laughs) She couldn't win. But there's a point with that. You know, so oftentimes we're confronted with things, and they're none of our business. None of our business at all. Maybe we're meddling where we shouldn't be. Ever been guilty of that? I suppose I've been guilty of that, and I, I definitely know that others have been guilty of that pertaining to me. Now, at such times, when somebody's meddling where they ought not, are we courageous enough to say that, that you shouldn't be going there? You know, normally folks who are meddling lack facts. They have their their own bias, and they only see a, a small part of the picture as a rule. They don't see the big picture. And so they're judging from their little angle here. Now, when I talk about not overstepping our boundaries or, or not maybe confronting folks. I'm not talking about overlooking flagrant sin. Somebody always goes there and says, oh, you just got to sweep it all under the carpet then. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about uh, just not confronting doctrine and confronting things that are, that are totally flagrantly wrong with the Word of God and flying in the face of the Word of God. But I am talking about not sticking our nose where it belongs when we have not been asked, when we have not uh, been consulted, and basically staying within our boundaries. Uh, There are a lot of folks, and even Christian folks, who are snooping where they ought not, being nosy where they ought not, meddling where they ought not, and forming an opinion, yea, even an attitude, because we have our nose where it doesn't belong. You know, you find all kinds of things that uh, really the Bible does not even address. Let's face it. Everybody has their own opinions. Everybody has their own agenda and what they call their own convictions. But oftentimes it evolves into what can be Christianity's favorite pastime. And that is sticking our nose where it doesn't belong. Years ago, I I bought a vehicle, and I bought it out of town because I got a terrific deal on it. Now, it was nobody within the church, but I heard back from somebody that you ought to support your own hometown, and I believe in that, but not to the tune of about $2,000 that I was able to save by buying out of town. Now, if you're that dedicated to supporting your hometown and have two grand that you can throw down a rat hole, you know, more power to you. But honestly, it's the Lord's money, and I'm not going to spend it that way. But isn't it funny... How you do something like that and somebody has an opinion on it. Or how many kids you ought to have. You know, you hear that kind of uh, uh, thing raised up. Or how to raise your kids. Or or, or whether you should have this fancy of a car or or be driving something that is not as fancy. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 4.15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Now that's quite a lineup. And notice the company that being a busybody keeps pretty rough company, isn't it? Murderers, thieves, evildoers, or as a busybody, it says, in other men's matters. You often wonder about folks who have their nose in other people's matters if they really have enough to do. Honestly, I'm too busy. And you wonder if uh, they're not idle or they don't need a job or they don't need a second job or something that would tie them up. So they wouldn't be sticking their nose in these things. You know, when we stick our nose where it doesn't belong, 
It's also a sign of self-righteousness. We have all the answers. We see all the wrongdoings. We see where they're blowing it, supposedly. That's very self-righteous. It really is. And self-deceived to think that we have all the answers. Now, in Matthew 7 and in verse 1, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. And he says, And why beholdest thou the mote, the toothpick, if you will, that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam, or the railroad tie, if you will, that is in thine own eye? And uh, it's really hypocritical of us to go around pointing out the flaws in everybody else when we have this beam in our eye. And, and normally folks who do that, without fail actually, have a beam in their eye. They have a blind spot. And they're blinded by their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness and their self-deception. Now, I'm not talking about being accountable to, to folks. We ought to be. Honestly, as God's people, we ought to want to do right. And we ought to be accountable and want to be accountable to others. But I'm talking about going to seat on it to where we go around thinking everybody's accountable to us. And trying to make sure they're crossing their T's the way we think they ought to be and dotting their I's the way we think they ought to be and telling them how to run their life. You ever notice there are just some folks who, who like to tell people how to run their life. They like to run lives. Romans 14.10 says, but why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That day is coming. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's for God's people. That's not for the lost. The lost will face God in the great white throne judgment. The saved will face God at the judgment seat of Christ. And every one of us is going to give an account for himself, the Bible says, not our brother. So I'm not going to stand there and, and say, well, what about Dustin here? What about Josh here? No, it'll be, what about me? What did I do with my life? I'm going to be accountable for me. You're going to be accountable for you. Now, as we look at John chapter 21, there's really few scenes in the Bible with as vivid of a background as this. And it's so wonderful here. Really, if you think about it, you have the disciples trying to go back to their old profession, striking out. I mean, getting skunked, as we say in fishing terms, and coming uh, to the end of the night, which was when the best fish were to be caught, and having nothing by morning. And so there they are, and Jesus shows up, and he's about 200 yards away, and he's on the shore. And they're out there, and he says, you have any meat? And they say, no. And uh, so anyway, we, we know the rest of the story about uh, uh, them casting the net on the right side of the boat and catching a bunch, and Peter, you know, light bulb comes on. And he casts himself into the sea. That's a long way to swim, by the way. And he swims all the way to shore and he gets there. And Jesus has, has a little fire going. Can you picture it there? The little coals, the embers of, of these, uh, these, uh, these pieces of wood. And there's some broiled fish. Just sounds good. And as uh, the smoke is curling around that broiled fish, he says, come and dine. And so they sit down and they eat. And, and here's a meal that was prepared by nail-scarred hands, no less the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. Well, the meal is over, and, and I think at this point, Peter's kind of laying low. If you get the scenario, he's kind of, uh, well, I think he's trying to hide because of what happened there when he denied the Lord. He's, he's trying to shrink, and, and if there would have been a crack in the sand there, he'd have kind of gotten through it because of this haunting memory of having denied the Lord some weeks earlier. And you remember the story of what happened there when he talked big, soon before the, uh, the trial of Christ, that he'd never deny the Lord, but he did three times. And their eyes met just before Christ was let out of the judgment hall, and, and Peter burst into tears. He felt terrible about what he had done. 
His heart is broke over his own failure. And here's the fellow who could be so hot and, and yet so cold and so impulsive. And so now Jesus confronts him and he says, you love me more than these. There's a lot of debate over what the these are, meaning maybe the disciples or maybe the fish. In other words, are you going to go back to fishing or are you going to preach the gospel here? Now notice he calls him Simon in verses 15 and 16 and 17, not Peter. Peter means rock, but that almost be a joke at this point. Simon tends to mean more moody and vacillating, not, not any rock stuff here because he had denied the Lord. And he knew that in the days of his guilt, three times he denied the Lord. And now Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Well, the rest of the uh, apostles are listening to this, something we often forget here. Had to be kind of awkward for Peter, and he kind of is squirming like a worm in hot sand here. And, and he knows they're all listening, and, and he's kind of being dressed down here in a nice way. But maybe it's bothering him that uh, it's kind of like, could you say this privately somewhere else? And, and you got these other guys, there's about six or seven here. And especially John, the one who wrote this. It doesn't appear in any other gospel, but John was there, and John was with an earshot. And he's the one who recorded it for us. Now, I can't prove this, but John and Peter were kind of the ones who were, I'm not saying competing or vying for the top position or jockeying for the head apostle, but they were the two top apostles, if you will. You can throw James in there if you want. But John was actually the one, the only apostle, who was in the room that night when Peter denied the Lord. And if you go back and you read it carefully, you'll find out he's the one who had the door open when Peter was standing outside and had Peter brought in. The, the Bible says the rest had forsaken him and fled. And so maybe this is, this is kind of uncomfortable. John's here. He's hearing this. He was there when I denied the Lord. He probably has connected the, the three questions of the Lord with the three times I denied the Lord. Maybe there was even some kind of a, a competition between these two. And I don't think so much on John's part. He, he doesn't strike me as that way. But if you read between the lines, you find some in, insecurity in the life of Peter. And, and, and maybe there was this competition, at least Peter's mind, with John to kind of end up on top. Well, he wasn't on top right now. And maybe it was bothering him. Never have anyone in grade school or high school that uh, he was the one next to you uh, academically or she was or, or maybe it was athletically or, or in, in music or whatever, but that one who always pushed you up from the bottom. And uh, the kind of your shadow, your invisible competition, and, and they're always there looming. Maybe that's what Peter felt like about John. And so here's John and he's hearing this and the one who was always close to the, the Lord and leaning on him uh, at various occasions and the one who, who was at the cross, we know that when it was all said and done. And here's John, the one who outran Peter to the tomb that, that day, that morning of the resurrection. And so here's Peter and he's uncomfortable. More about John in a moment. But Peter needed uh, restoration, no doubt about that. He needed reinstatement here. He was hurting, and, and quite often we know how he feels. Kind of we want that wink or that nod and that wave and, and, and that new beginning and that, that the word from the Lord that we're forgiven and that we can move on. And that's what Peter was waiting for here. So as we look at this by way of background, we see what I call, first of all, the prophetic declaration. And it's in verse number 18. Jesus makes it. He says to Peter, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young... Thou girded thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. 
Now here's Peter, very self-willed, very used to doing his own thing, doing as he pleased, and, and having his freedom. And Christ says something about that in verse number 18. He said, when you were young, you did your own thing, you went where you wanted, when you wanted. But he said, that's going to change. Now, what's Jesus saying here in verse number 18? Well, notice, first of all, the word girdest. When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself. But when you get old, somebody else is going to gird thee. What's this girding all about? Well, really, he's talking here about a rope. And often a rope was used even for a belt back in those days. And and we find uh, it was called a a girdle, of all things, in Acts 21.11. It says, and when he, and that's this Agabus, this kind of strange prophet in the book of Acts, was coming to us, Luke says, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet. And ladies, it's not what you think, okay? It was a rope. It was Paul's belt. And Agabus is trying to make a point here. And he's tying up his hands with Paul's belt or girdle and saying, this is what the Jews are going to do in Jerusalem if you go back there. And so what What Jesus was talking about here with Peter is you are going to be bound with ropes, but not just any ropes. You know, we know crucifixion most of the time as being used with nails. And because of what we read about Christ in the Bible, they drove nails through his hands and feet. And oftentimes the Romans would do that. But quite often the Romans would actually just tie the victim to the cross and just let him hang out there and expire that way. And so he was still talking about the crucifixion here. He was saying, Peter, when you were younger, you put your belt on. You went and did what you want. You, you were your own man. You called your own shots. But when you get older, he said, they're going to gird thee. And look at how it's worded. But when thou shalt be old, verse 18, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another, a Roman soldier, shall gird thee or tie thee to that cross and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. He's predicting, Jesus is telling Peter, he's making this prophetic declaration that one day you're going to be crucified, as it were. Now, Jesus had told him that years earlier. In John 13, 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. He had told Peter, you're going to follow me. Didn't give more detail, but he would follow him in death and more specifically crucifixion. But but here's Peter, and he's a bull in the china shop. We know that. He he's strong in body, no question, but but he's weak in grace and intact. And he has some growing to do. In fact, thirty one or thirty four years later actually, he will be crucified like Jesus Christ said that he would. He had to grow some, though, and he's the one who closed his final epistle by telling us to grow in grace, and he knew something about that. But here's Jesus now telling Peter how he's going to die, and maybe with it, saying, Peter, I'm going to give you a chance to make it up to me. You denied me back yonder, and and yeah, you're licking your wounds, and you're hurting over that, but he said the day is coming when you are going to get a chance to make up for that. Now, we know that's, that's what he's talking about basically here, because in verse 19... It says, this spake he, signifying by what death he, Peter, should glorify God. And when he, Jesus, had spoken this, he saith unto him, Peter, follow me. So we know that he was talking about getting crucified. And legend has it that Peter was crucified. But he felt unworthy to die like the Lord. And so he said, please crucify me upside down. And finally, the day came when the aged Peter in his 60s died. Shortly before he did, he said this in 2 Peter 1, 14. 
Knowing that shortly, I must put off this my tabernacle or body, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. And he's thinking about this scenario that took place back here in John chapter 21. The day when he would put off this tabernacle like Christ had shown him right here. Now, look in verse 19. Here's what's ironic. This spake he, signifying by what death Peter should glorify God. Glorify God by crucifixion? Really? That's violent. It's an awful way to die. But you know, the Bible says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And really, we're here to glorify God in life or in death. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Plain and simple. But think of this. Peter knows from this point on he's going to be crucified. What a way to go. You talk about dreading something. And, and, and in Acts chapter 12, we find years later that Herod takes him prisoner, puts him in this prison. He's going to behead him the way he did uh, James. And Peter's sleeping. And I thought, boy, that's pretty calm. That's a lot of faith. But, you know, Peter probably knew this isn't it. And he was able to sleep because he knew, no, I'm not going to be beheaded. I'm going to be crucified like the Lord Jesus Christ told me. So he said, this isn't it. But notice in verse 19 something else. This spake Jesus, signifying by what death Peter should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. Notice singular. He didn't look around the rest of the fellows. Now, I think they followed but we find here we have a God who deals with us individually. He says here to Peter, follow me. He looked into the, the dark brown Jewish eyes of that man, the same eyes that uh, had met the eyes of Christ weeks earlier on that fateful day when he denied the Lord, and he said to him, now, follow me. Now, that's something Peter had heard several times throughout the ministry there. In uh, Matthew 10.38, it says, and he that taketh not his cross, Christ is talking, and followeth after me is not worthy of me. And so Christ had told these fellows before, follow me. And so Peter was familiar with these words in verse 19, follow me. And I think Christ makes it clear here, the way he says it, at the exclusion of everything else, I want you to follow me. You ever followed somebody before? A few weeks ago, we had the Clark family in town. We went out to eat at the, the buffet afterwards. And they said, how do we get there? I said, just follow me. I'm driving this grandpa car, all right? I've got this tan car. And just keep your eyes on me. And, and I drove by him. I said, I'm in this car. So we pulled out of the parking lot. And all they had to do between here and the buffet was watch me. Keep their eyes on me. You ever followed somebody like that? I mean, you, you just kind of... You Put everything else out of your mind and, and, and zone out everything else except that, that car ahead of you. And you follow it. That's what Peter needed to do with Jesus Christ. Just follow him. Keep your eyes on that car. And Jesus is saying, focus on me. Focus on me here. Now, here's the ironic part. Peter's going to blow it right away. We see the prophetic declaration. But secondly, we see the prying disciple. It's Peter. He gets nosy. He starts meddling. Notice in verse 20... Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple. And let's just stop right there. There's his first mistake. Eyes are supposed to stay on Jesus, supposed to follow him, supposed to just kind of uh, zone everything else out. But the first thing he does, he turns around and he sees John. He sees John. It's like, yikes. He, I mean, he blows it immediately here. Kind of like we do. You know, we can hear a sermon on a, a Sunday night and Monday, turn around and blow it. Or Wednesday night and blow it on Thursday. 
I preached a sermon one time years ago about loving the brethren and getting along, and, and, and two fellows in the church were in a fight before they left the service that night, <laughs> if you can imagine that. And so we can hear something and, and forget it almost immediately, and that's Peter here. I mean, he blows it. And he turns around and he sees, there's John. There's his, there's his shadow. There's my invisible competition. And so he has this question. And in verse 20, then Peter turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following, which also, and still talking about John, which also leaned on Jesus' breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Now, what was there about John that kind of made Peter nervous? This nagging uneasiness there, perhaps, in, in the relationship. I mean, John? Why John? Why not Thomas? Why not James? But John hadn't denied the Lord. Not like Peter had. John had been there at the foot of the cross. Not like Peter. And Peter had just been told, you're going to get crucified. <laughs> not good news. And so maybe he's thinking, what, is this punishment? And so he asks about John. Well, is he going to get crucified too? We see this prying disciple. But we see, thirdly, this pointed denunciation. In verse 22, Jesus saith unto him, Peter, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Ouch. I mean, wow. That is the question. What is that to thee? What is it to you? You know, Jesus had known Peter for years, and he knew that he was always being a budinsky and, and having his eyes on other people where they didn't belong, and so he says, focus on me. Quit being a busybody. You know, there are some folks, and they're, they're fond of managing other people's business. Have you noticed that? And, and micromanaging others, and that's Peter. And he is told here clearly to mind your own business. Get your nose back where it belongs. You know, if you and I are continually concerned about what others are doing or, or second-guessing others or critiquing others and even getting cynical in the process, we're going to fall. And I've seen some people fall like that. The main business of a child of God is to follow the Lord. Plain and simple. Keep your eyes on Him. Well, look at verse 23. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple should not die. Notice the rumor mill starting already. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? And so the gossip begins immediately. It's, it's a classic case of what I'm talking about. And that's, I think, why John included this in his record. Nobody else did to set that record straight. Now, John survived the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Well, many Jews were, were murdered. He, he spent the next 20 years pastoring and evangelizing and, and serving the Lord. And, and finally, over 60 years after this episode... We find him as an aged man in his 90s in exile on the Isle of Patmos there. And he gets the revelation. You could say that he saw the second coming of Christ. There was something very strange in Mark 9 and other places in the Gospels where Christ mentioned this. In verse 1 of Mark 9, he said unto them, that is James, Peter, and John, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And maybe they remembered that thinking, oh, that must be John. He's not going to die. And that's why they start this rumor here, John's not going to die. John's not going to die. Well, John died. We know that. 
And in fact, he died peacefully around 98 AD. And, and they say that his tomb is in Ephesus there where it might likely be. But the bottom line is Christ was saying, there's some standing here which aren't going to taste of death until they see me come again. John saw that at least symbolically and in vision when he was on the Isle of Patmos. That might be what Christ was talking about there. But we see here this pointed denunciation toward this prying disciple after this prophetic declaration which leads us finally to a personal determination. How can we apply this to ourselves here? Now, if Jesus walked this earth today, if he followed us around, I wonder how many times he'd stop us and say with a probing finger, mind your own business. What is that to thee? None of your beeswax. You know, I've had folks over the years, and naturally this comes with ministry and and leadership within ministry. I've had folks over the years who have second-guessed some of the things that I do, and and some who have gotten so bold as to approach me and and tell me I'm doing this wrong or doing that wrong. And, And the bottom line is God never called them to take the oversight of the local church like he did the pastor, and Peter himself mentioned that. And in Hebrews chapter 7, it mentions the preacher, and it says, Whose faith follow? Whose faith follow? Plain and simple. So I'm not beyond suggestions or appeals if done in the right heart and spirit and so on and so forth. And I listen to those. In fact, I sent somebody an email this afternoon and I said this and this. Please advise. I'm always open to advice. I really am. But when somebody does it with the wrong spirit or somebody is out of their jurisdiction or somebody even gives me a bad suggestion that isn't the, well, let's just say it's the opposite of smart and I don't use it, don't feel of the Lord to use it, don't get upset. That's being out of your jurisdiction. You know, we find that even the Lord Jesus Christ stayed out of his jurisdiction. And of course, he could have judged anything. But there was a time when a fellow came to him and said, You know, my brother won't divide the inheritance with me. Tell him to to divide it. And in Luke chapter 12 and verse 14, he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? I mean, even Christ wouldn't go there. That's something if we think about it. He said, that's not my jurisdiction. You know, there's so many things we stick our nose into, so many comments that we say, and we really could just save the comments because as we're judging somebody, we don't know their motives. Again, we see a small piece of the picture, but we can't look into their heart, and we don't know the background of the whole scenario. And so, what's it to us? Bottom line is, what is it to us? You say, well, pastor, I know so-and-so is having problems in their marriage. And uh, they continue to sing in the choir. Hmm. So, what's it to you? Bottom line is, that's none of your business. Pastor, I know so-and-so got a new house. Now, where are they getting all that money? I don't know, but what's it to you? It's really none of your business. It's none of my business. We all have our, our own agenda, don't we? And, and, and the way that we think things should really be. And we waste an awful lot of time and an awful lot of energy uh, comparing what we think is right to what others are doing. And it's not even wise. Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Why do we think it strengthens our case when we compare ourselves to somebody else and they're found wanting. And we say, okay, there it is. Or why do we, why do we waste so much time second-guessing somebody? And, and uh, you know, I've heard stuff like, you know, uh, five, six, seven kids. I mean, uh, when are you going to stop? You have so many. When did God call us to dictate family sizes? He hasn't. That is none of our business. You know, your kids and uh, their activities are none of my business. 
And there are certain things that we don't do, and I see other Christians doing them. I cringe a little bit as they do them, but it's none of my business. How you raise your kids, how you educate your kids, how you discipline your kids is your business. It's not my business, your business. If your wife works out of the home and that's God's will for you, that's none of my business. How big of a house you live in, none of my business. None of anybody's business. How nice of a car you drive, none of my business. If somebody's better off financially than you or me, that's none of our business. See what I'm saying? These are things that are not up for discussion, and when will we learn? Now, I have my own convictions. You have your own convictions. But did you know God's calling is personal And God's leading is unique. May I say that again? God's callings are personal. God's leadings are unique with everybody. I've had preachers second guess what what I do here and say I wouldn't do that. Well, don't. Bottom line is God's calling is personal and his leading is unique. And my lifestyle doesn't have to match yours and yours doesn't have to match mine. That is your business. Look, if you turn around and buy a boat... That's your business. If I take a cruise on a ship someplace, that's my business. If you watch too much television, God help you, but that's your business, okay? That is between you and God. You know, the Bible teaches something called individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty is exactly like it sounds. We all have individual souls with liberty from God, as long as we're not violating Scripture, to uh, dictate our lifestyle based upon what we feel God is leading us to do. And may I say to you, God didn't create puppets. He created people. He created people. And people with the right to choose going way back to Adam and Eve. God didn't make them robots, didn't make them puppets. He gave them the right to choose right, uh, right off the bat. And they were made in God's image, who, by the way, has the right to choose as well. You know, there's something called Calvinism, which says God chooses whether you go to heaven or hell for you. Now, there are some points within Calvinism that I can say, wow, that, that's valid. There are some points within Arminianism that I can say, you know, that's, that's valid. You say, well, which are you? Neither. Neither. And to say that uh, God makes us robots and, and uh, we have no right to choose, you don't find that in the Scriptures. You know, I hope my children get saved one day, all of them. But God has to draw them, and they have to choose. They are a moral free agent with God. They have individual soul liberty, plain and simple. Somebody says, you know, you you guys try and force your religion on people. Oh, really? Contraire. If there's anybody who fought for religious liberty in this country, it was the Baptists. And that can be proven historically. We're the ones who said everybody ought to have the right to choose their own faith. Now, I only want the opportunity to show somebody what the Bible says about getting saved. And it is pretty narrow, as Christ said in John 14, 6. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And and no man can come unto the Father but by Him. But you're free to refuse that. And anyone can. And that's why Jesus said, if you go into a town and you preach and they shoot you down, just shake the dust off your feet and move on. They have the right to choose what they want. And if you're saved, you have the right to choose as you please, as long as we follow what Christ dictates within uh, these two covers here. And yet there is a lot of liberty there. And there are a lot of things that are not specifically mentioned. And there is something called the priesthood of the believer. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Notice a royal priesthood. 
That means you don't have to go through me or anyone else to get to God. Like the high priest of the Old Testament, you have access to the Holy of Holies straight to God because we believe in the priesthood of the believer. Now, if you're a member of this church and you are getting drunk and you're into fornication and some things you should not be in, you're not upholding the testimony of this church. And yes, we have every right to address that, biblically speaking. But if it's some extra-biblical matter and you just have this, uh, this opinion or this desire to do it this way and, and somebody else does it that way, that's their business. It's not your business. Don't be a little Pharisee. Bottom line, a little Pharisee trying to control everybody else with your opinion. You know, somebody said, I don't know the way to success, but I did sure know the way to failure, and it's trying to please everybody. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) You want to fail, try and please everybody. We really need to stop the pettiness and, and, and get our eyes back on Christ. That's what Christ was telling Peter here. And let people be different than us and still obedient servants of Christ. The Lord told him off. I mean, that was pretty firm there. But, but he said, Peter, follow me and mind your own business and, and live and let live. Grow up. May God grow us up. Honestly, there are so many things that are none of my business and so many things that are none of your business. And the last thing we need within any local church is a bunch of little Pharisees going around policing each other. It's not the will of God. You know, if, if Christ were to follow us around, and when we critique somebody and judge somebody, if he were to probe deeply why we are judging, I think he would find we have our own issues. We have a problem with somebody else buying something or making a certain amount. What about our own envy? Maybe that's the real problem here. Or our own greed. Maybe that's the issue here. If we point a finger at somebody who says, well, they, uh, they like the limelight. They're prima donnas and so on. Maybe we have our own secret little desire for uh, acclamation and for glory. If we point a finger and saying, well, they're, they're playing favorites. You know what I've found quite often? When there's an accusation and somebody says, well, this and this and this, I find that most of the time they have that issue. Uh, that's an amazing thing. The longer you're in the ministry, the more you'll notice that. They actually have that issue. You know, maybe they're criticizing somebody because they have their own insecurities. Some things they're insecure about. You know, bottom line is they have idle time. Way too much time on their hands. I've said often the attitude with which we find fault is often worse than the fault we find. Isn't that the truth? We start pointing fingers and finding fault. And what's worse, that which we're pointing out or the attitude with which we're doing it? Bottom line, we need to grow up and may God give us some broad shoulders and may we give people some room to grow. Plain and simple. So backing up. Peter's kind of flush with embarrassment. He's denied the Lord. He's told to follow Christ, turns around, sees John, and says, what about him? What does Christ say? Peter, it's none of your business. You're overstepping your boundaries. If it was like that in the first century, it's like that in the 21st century. And I just want to say in closing, God help all of us to know our jurisdiction, our our circle of authority to stay within it and to keep our nose out of other people's business and not to overstep our God-given boundaries. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 
23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.